Edie is delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED Podcast, broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, which is a Net Zero November special, we asked the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials how much hyped Net Zero financed emissions commitments are being delivered. Even though there are there are a number of external triggers uh, around the world, I think that whole focus on decarbonisation and continuing towards that net zero journey, I think it remains quite important for financial institutions. The Crown Estate outlines how a big scaling up of offshore wind can be planned alongside ambitious plans to conserve and restore marine habitats. The competing demands over the same bit of space, um, I, you know, I believe needs a systems-based approach. And Earthner walks us through the state of climate action in Qatar at the moment in the last few weeks before COP28. To me, um, a lot of what needs to be done is going to have to be technological solutions that are going to be put on the table by the private sector. So there is an opportunity for investors in the private sector to, to be part of the solution. All of that and more coming up in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on when you're tuning in. You're listening to the voice of ED's Deputy Editor, Sarah George, and this is Sustainability Uncovered. Um, And here in the studio with me, I have another voice. A big welcome back to Editor Matt Mace. Yep, back from the, not the grave, but what felt like the grave at the time. So glad to be back and working. I know. For for new listeners, Matt, would you mind filling them, them in on the... Regular yeah. Matt's back pain yeah, feature. Yeah, uh, another, another day, another back flare-up. Um, I had to go to the hospital for this one. Kind of completely lost range of movement in my legs and my back. Uh, and it was a nasty case of sciatica, which I'm still getting better uh, from. Still not got like the full range of movement back. But I'm able to work, at least. I was having periods where I was trying to type lying down, which uh, I don't know if you've ever tried it. It's surprisingly tough. Um, but I'm... I can sit upright now, so that's progress. No, if you're listening this and imagining this, don't worry, we've not got him laid on the floor of our studio here in West Sussex. He's very much back in the seat. Um, For this special, which is being put on for Net Zero November, um, so we we do this every November. It provides like quite a nice focus, I think, ahead of the UN climate conferences, um, the COPs. We've been doing them since, I think, 2019, um, Net Zero Novembers, but... um, yeah, Matt, what, what what have you got lined up for this month for, for people that are new here? Maybe give us a little flavour of the month. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as, as Sarah said, I mean, Net Zero November is a bit, a bit like Ronto, isn't it? It's kind of what it says on the tin. But um, everything, not everything, we're still covering any big sustainability developments and CSR and ESG developments. But we, we really do have a laser focus on all things Net Zero uh, through the lens of policy, but also uh, corporate action. We've already had quite a few big reports um, around uh, net zero trackers um, and uh, disclosure around transition plans. So this month we're really looking into kind of bridging the that ambition uh, 
gap, the action gap, I suppose, from setting net zero targets and actually having the plans in place to deliver them in a way that investors and disclosure platforms are comfortable with. So we've got um, uh, a new report that's going to be um, uh, published later on this year based on our first sustainable business tracker survey. We've got obviously themed podcasts, which are in right now. Uh, interviews and opinion pieces uh, with various businesses and NGOs, uh, which will cover how they're embracing Net Zero, but also looking ahead to COP28, as Sarah mentioned. And we do have an afternoon of online carbon action sessions. Uh, it's essentially combining four easy webinars into a single afternoon, um, which is not to be missed. We've got organisations, including the UN high-level climate champions, uh, the Transitions Plan Task Force, and businesses like Royal Mail and Bupa as well. So that's a, a not-miss afternoon. That's the Wednesday, the 22nd of November. A date for your diaries if you're interested in that. There's info on the site about registering. Fab, and we're, we're somehow going to squeeze all of this in before COP28 starts um, on the 30th of November um, in Dubai. And this obviously links to all of the topics that we've, we've talked about. Um, so we've been counting down informally for a while, formally since mid-October um, to this climate conference. Um, and it is with COP28 that we're going to start this episode before diving into the some of the more specific bits of the net zero transition that Matt's mentioned. So the second half of this episode is really all about that ambition to action, um, that from what and why into how. Um, but for now, we're going to start with a scene setter for COP28 um, with our first guest. So for our first guest, um, I recorded a call this morning um, with the Earthner Centre for a Sustainable Future, often just called Earthner. Um, really interesting organisation, a non-profit policy research and advocacy centre in Qatar. So when I got asked to speak to these guys, I thought it would be really handy um, to learn a bit more about what is going on in this part of the world before we, we try and travel there mm. um, later this, this month. So the organisation describes itself as a facilitator of sustainability efforts in, in the country, so connecting non-state actors, informing policy makers, informing um, decision makers. So think of your think tanks here in the UK like Green Alliance. It's right, the okay. same sort of... Um, sort of aim at, at the end, um, especially really looking at what can be done in countries that are hot and arid and at the moment really dependent on the export of fossil fuels. So this was a really interesting um, discussion. So our first of three guest speakers for this episode is Dr. Gonzalo Castro de la Mata, the Executive Director of Earthna. So let's play that interview with him in full. Yes, it is great to be kickstarting our interviews for this episode with the Executive Director of Earthna, Dr. Gonzalo. Thank you so much for your time. How are you today? Thank you, Sarah, very much. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Um, and I assume very busy as, as well at this point in the year. Yes, usually and especially now with the COP around the corner and many activities going on, it's, it's a busy time for all of us. Of course. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to come onto the podcast. I must say that before I got the pitch um, from Earthna, I wasn't super aware of the organisation. So it'd be great to have an introduction to the organisation in your own words um, for our listeners who probably might also not be familiar. Sure, I will be very happy to. Uh, we are um, a small and new uh, think tank based in Qatar. We're part of Qatar Foundation. Qatar Foundation is a major 
investment in developing human capital uh, in Qatar, and it includes eight universities, three uh, research centers, it has the National Library, it has a stadium. There is a lot of academic activity, and a lot of that is related to sustainability. So our uh, purpose, the purpose of EARTHNA, is to try to use all of that knowledge that has been generated to digest it into policy action. So we work very closely with the government and we try to use that knowledge to develop evidence-based policy actions for the country. That makes sense. And obviously a really important time to be doing that work in the lead up to COP28. Um, so I guess the natural question is what have been your focus areas this past year? How have you been preparing for this summit and the moment that that presents to um, engage policymakers? Yes, we started two years ago. Um, and we were at the COP last year in Sharm el-Sheikh and we're going to the COP this year as well. We have a research program that includes five programs, five uh, main areas of work. Sustainability frameworks and circular economy is one. The second one is climate and energy transition. The third one is the built environment. Then we do biodiversity and ecosystems. And then finally, education, faith and values. So it's a very comprehensive set of research and policy programs. And obviously, climate is one of the most important ones. Last uh, two weeks ago, we organized for the third time the what we call the Qatar National Dialogue on Climate Change where we bring in all of the players in Qatar, the different sectors, the private sector companies, banks, industry, transport, uh, government, academia, and, and, and private sector to discuss about climate. And what is really fascinating and amazing is that everybody's doing something about it. So, so uh, the different sectors, the different people, everybody thinking about climate and taking it into consideration for, for their plans. This is, a, as I said, this is an annual event. It's co-organized with the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change. And the idea is for this to help shape the positions that Qatar will bring into to each COP, COP. I guess that's what I wanted to explore a bit, a bit more. So the COP28 team have really set out their stance of taking into COP. So is that in alignment with what you're developing? Is the policy agenda slightly different um, in the two countries? Because as you say, everyone is now on board with the need to do something. The difference now is more about the how and the when in terms of what we're seeing. Absolutely. And I think it's very important to mention that, of course, uh, we are not speaking on behalf of the country. We are, we are an NGO. We are a think tank. We advise the government. And from that perspective, uh, we have our own uh, views regarding the climate and energy transition. But but for me, I've been following the climate convention for, for, for decades now. Um, what is important is to see the evolution of the climate convention as it continues. Um, and the COPs are, of course, uh, events in time where you take a stock and you talk about certain things. But it's not the end of something and it's not the beginning of something. It's just a continuous process. The negotiations continue. There are certain very important milestones like the Paris Agreement, of course, where finally we, the, the global countries agree on some targets and some specifics. And, and that becomes um, a very useful uh, common framework for everybody. But the COP in Dubai next month 
is is one more step in this long journey. Of course, I think most people that actually work on these know that most of the work happens throughout the rest of the year. <laughs> Two weeks, of course, being a minority um, of the year. But something I wanted to touch on, you mentioned that you've been to um, previous COPs. Um, something that we've seen is that we're increasingly involving what the UN calls non-state actors. Um, so businesses, academia, local authorities, think tanks, faith groups. Um, and being based in the UK, we really saw the coming together of non-state actors at COP26 in Glasgow. What is that like um, in your region at the moment? How, how important is it now to enable better coordination um, between, between these organisations at the moment? I think it's critical. Non-state actors are becoming, as you said, much more prominent in the, in the discussions regarding climate. And the reason is that as we move forward, when you look at 30 years ago, when, when Rio Convention, when, when, when the Rio Summit and the conventions were negotiated, climate change, global warming was primarily almost an academic issue. It was something that it was going to happen in the future. By then, of course, we had the science, all the science was there already, we knew what's going to happen, but it was very far. Today, climate is something that touches everybody. So businesses need to prepare uh, because the, the future may be uncertain. People need to prepare. People are concerned. Uh, the youth are very concerned. And, and then it is no longer governments um, leading the negotiations, but I think that is governments that are responding to this pressure from society at large to do, to do something. And that's very exciting. The other reason why this is so important is because to me, um, a lot of what needs to be done is going to have to be technological solutions that are going to be put on the table by the private sector. So there is an opportunity for the investors in the private sector to, to be part of the solution. Um, and I think this opens all kinds of new avenues for collaboration and, and to move forward and to be able to, to reach the Paris Agreement targets. Of course, and that's something that we see see here as, as well. I think it's a global um, it's a global thing. So what is EarthNA doing to engage these other kinds of groups? I know we've talked about how it can um, work to engage policymakers, but what does your collaboration look with what the UN would call um, non-state actors? Yes, we uh, a big part of our work is advocacy. So we convene uh, the different players. As I said, the Qatar National Dialogue on Climate Change we have about 250 experts coming from the very different sectors. Government was one of them, but we also have private sector, academia, uh, etc. So, so that's, that's that's something that we convene. We want to hear from from everybody. Uh, earlier in the year, we also had what we call the Earthna Summit. It was a very large international meeting. We had uh, close to 1,400 people from more than 110 countries to talk about sustainability, but with a focus on hot and arid countries. When we talk about sustainability, uh, people tend to assume, of course, we're talking about forest and water and biodiversity and ecosystems. Yes, we're talking about that, but in a hot and arid country like Qatar, which is in the middle of a desert, sustainability means something very different. So we need to really develop a, um, an agenda that better responds to, to the needs of, of the country. That makes complete sense. And we've talked there about some really exciting stuff that's been going on over the past year. Um, and as we come to the end of our discussion on this podcast, I 
in, it probably bears looking ahead. As you say, COP isn't the start or the end. It, it can't achieve everything in two weeks. So are you able to give us a sort of look ahead of uh, what your team is planning for, for post-COP in 2024? Yes, I think that, um, and I have discussed this with some of uh, the climate envoys of some of countries that are very active in, in, in the negotiations. And I think that increasingly we need to understand that Although we play within the framework of Paris, every country is different and every country has a different pathway uh, towards the, the, the Paris targets, but also in terms of what they can do. In the case of Qatar, it's quite interesting because it's the largest exporter of LNG. Um, it is important to understand two things. First, today, LNG and natural gas replaces coal for the most part and therefore helps lower global emissions. And this is an effect that we need to recognize. Today, gas is playing a positive uh, role in terms of climate targets. This is going to change in the future as the world economy decarbonizes. So, of course, this is the framework in which the country has to look at energy transition. And there is where uh, technology and innovation comes into place. For example, what is going to happen with this gas? Well, we have to do something with it. We can turn it into hydrogen. And then a big chunk of the gas can actually be turned into hydrogen with carbon capture and storage. The technology exists today so that we can turn it into another form of, of energy. In addition, of course, to everything else that we are doing in terms of photovoltaics and renewable energy. So we need to understand each country's reality and what the country can do to contribute towards uh, making sure that, that we will not cook in the in the decades to come. Of course, I mean, we should have mentioned as well, well that this COP will be the, the coinciding with the first global stock take. So that will provide a much clearer um, view of, as you say, not only the global picture, but those specific contexts. So lots to look forward to. Um, but I think that's all the time we have for this part of the podcast. So Dr. Gonzalo, thank you very much um, for your time today. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure having the chance to talk to you. I love your podcast. Thank you so much. Yes, a big thank you to Dr. Gonzalo once again for his time and for sort of wetting our appetites for COP. Um, and I think it would probably be a good time to do a little feature in the studio. Good COP, bad COP. We used to do this in our daily briefings from COPs where we'd say something that was positive that happened that day and something that was not so positive that happened that day. Um, anything from a weak final agreement to just every every possible outlet in the conference running out of food. <laughs> um, but for this, I thought it would be t it would be good to look at our good cop, bad cop in terms of our hopes, the good cop, and fears, the bad cop for COP28. So on on the eve of this summit, this is our last episode of the podcast before we will go. What are your thoughts, Matt? I think my my. My good cop and my bad cop are actually the, the same thing in the mm. sense that the hopes and fears, uh, are, the hope comes from responding to the fear, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is that I think this is the first cop where we're going to have the actual global stock take um, announced at ACT and culminating at COP28. So the global stock take, for those aren't aware, it's this big aspect of the Paris Agreement framework takes place every five years um, that basically kind of kickstarts the next round of what is needed in terms of national climate commitment or, or nationally determined contributions in NDCs. Uh, so we're getting the, uh, we're away from the kind of synthesis report and now we're kind of getting this culmination at COP28 where it's kind of we will learn where we're at in terms of countries and the gaps in the action not just in terms of target setting but finance as well and I think it's going to be a real 
make or break moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm fearful of what the report's going to say, but I'm hopeful that it will spark a real kind of next wave of, of discussions. I kind of view it as like in Lord of the Rings where they, uh, they light the beacons and it's like, oh, the beacons are lit and Gondor calls for aid. And it's like every, and then the, I don't know what the other nations are called, but they come and they, they, they fight. I think that's going to be it. This is going to be like the global stock take is going to be this beacon light in and we're going to see how, how much trouble we're in. And obviously it's obvious how much trouble we're in, but we're going to see how much of the gap is there and what needs to be addressed. And, and that should be, I'm hopeful, that it's the mechanism that, that kickstarts different types of conversations at COPs moving forward. I'm fearful that it will be bad news and that we won't necessarily respond to that how we should. I mean, I don't have as dramatic or cinematic a metaphor to respond to that with. And I was trying to think of my own good cop and bad cop. I mean, the bad cop is essentially what Lord Deben spoke to, to me about ahead of COP26 and reiterated against COP27, that this is a time where to accelerate, to do the gap, we really need an abundance of cheap capital um, and to make it really easy for decision makers to push the button on a massive acceleration. Um, instead, supply chains are slowing down. Everything's getting more expensive, partly due to energy price crisis carrying on, partly mm. due to escalating conflict, partly due to actual extreme weather made worse and more likely by climate change. So it's almost sort of like the wrong place at exactly the wrong time um, again. Um, but as you say, I, I still hold out hope that there could be a bit of a, a wake-up call here, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's Barbados and other small island states that yeah. do it again. We, we've seen um, what they've been saying that at the past two COPs, the advocacy they've done on finance, um, so I will be watching that space very acutely. I mean, we've jumped straight into the big topic, haven't we? <laughs> so we've, we've gone way into massive global climate diplomacy and collaboration. Um, so we're now going to take a short break, recalibrate and deliver up the other two interviews of this episode, which look at more specific parts of the Net Zero transition. Namely, we'll be looking at offshore wind in the UK and Net Zero strategy within the financial sector. So join Matt and I after the jingle. ED's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Sustainability Uncovered podcast hosted for Net Zero November 2023. The long-term listeners among you may notice that Luke isn't here. He's busy squirrelling away on some of our long-term projects, but this is usually where he'd make some sort of analogy. So please do join Matt and I, the Wallace and Gromit of corporate sustainability for the second half of the podcast. Who's, who's Wallace, who's Gromit? This is an excellent question. How much do you like Wensley Tale? Uh, the... I'm, I'm partial to it, yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably the Gromit, yeah. keeping me on oh, track without me even noticing and I'm just hankering for cheese around the office all the time. Strangely enough, a penguin is my mortal enemy as well, so that's, <laughs> a, that's a fitting one. We'll go for that then. Um, and what we'll go for for this next bit of the podcast is a look at the potential tensions between the need for nature and climate solutions and the need to massively scale different 
renewables. Um, so Matt, I thought I'd start you off with a pop quiz question to get us in the mood for this okay. one. How many gigawatts of offshore wind capacity does the UK want to host by 2030? 50. Excellent. Um, and what proportion of land and sea has it committed to set aside for nature by 2030? 30. 30 percent um so essentially the question that i'm trying to get at here is can we do both oh right and this isn't a pop quiz question for you you'll be be glad to know um i was lucky enough to speak about this with the crown estates head of marine planning olivia thomas um who was giving these insights on two absolutely crucial bits of the net zero transition i feel like with a topic like net zero november there's a number of ways you can take it but i think you'd be remiss to miss out renewables or nature. So let's get into that interview with Olivia in full. Yes, so where would a podcast for Net Zero November be without some focus on the energy transition? For this next part of the episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Olivia Thomas, who is the Head of Marine Planning at the Crown Estate. So Olivia, thank you so much for your time. How are you? Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for having me today. I'm very well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. I was saying that, um, yeah, so soon after the storm, it's pretty uh, ropey, really, to talk about uh, anything to do with marine at the moment. We know that marine has been very choppy, to say the least. um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe a perfect time for us to be talking about net zero, though, and some of the work we can be doing to tackle climate change. Absolutely. That's every day for us. Um, So grateful to have your time. Um, I think it probably bears starting with a brief introduction to the Crown Estate um, and what it has to do with marine planning. We here at EDI are pretty familiar with your work, um, but I'm sure we've had some listeners who might not be so familiar. Sure, very happy to share, Sarah. So, as I say, thank you for having me. Um, the Crown Estate is a really interesting organisation. I don't just say that because I work for them, but um, essentially, the Crown Estate's a, a significant landowner. So, and it has a diverse portfolio, so a, a sixteen billion pound portfolio. If you were to put a monetary figure over it, but really the diversity is the important bit. So we look after um, land and assets across um, urban centres like central London and various different development opportunities. Um, Also through to us being one of the largest rural land holdings in the country as well. Um, And then importantly, given the discussion and my role, um, we also manage the seabed and much of the coastline around England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So we um, play a major role in um, helping deliver some of the key government and country needs such as uh, the UK's energy transition and energy security and the seabed plays a part in that. I'm sure we've all heard about how the seabed is is getting busier. So when it comes to being manager of the seabed, what are the challenges involved with, with that work? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is absolutely the seabed is getting busier. Um, and I think when you when we think about the role of the Crown Estate, um, we're set up to grow value and that's um, value that we uh, return to um, the Treasury for the benefit of the nation's finances. So we look at um, and are driven by a purpose of creating shared and lasting um, value for the nation and that's environmental, social and economic. And so when you think about the seabed and uh, the marine scape, you'll often look at it and think, well, you know, it's a relatively tranquil environment, one I certainly go to to relax and look out 
out at what looks like not so busy space, but the reality is that there are a number of competing demands. And so managing the seabed really becomes that nationally important responsibility. And even if we think about offshore wind and where we've come over the last 15, 20 years, there were no turbines in the water 20 years ago. And now we supply enough wind for almost 41% of all the homes around the country. Um, And also then looking ahead at that busy space, we need to do more in the next 10 years than we've done in the last 20. So it definitely is complex and, um, you know, comes with an ever increasing need for coordination on how the space is used. Yeah, I guess the question there is is whether it's all possible. We often hear that we've got competing targets in a way that the scaling up of renewable energy could undermine the delivery of commitments to protect and restore marine habitats. And that's before we even talk about things like fishing and carbon storage, which is why I know that the Crown Estate is is um, overseeing this offshore wind evidence and change programme. So it would be great to hear a little bit more about that and whether it really is possible to to balance all those needs of of the future of the seabed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely multiple needs over the seabed, as you say, Sarah. So whether that's energy security or tackling climate change, which, you know, even in its own right, has an impact on biodiversity and the natural environment is struggling. So really the challenge of meeting these needs and the competing demands over the same bit of space um, I, you know, I believe needs a systems based approach. And if we think about the biodiversity and the marine environment, we look at the marine and coastal ecosystems, all of those life supporting services, whether that's food production, climate regulation, carbon sequestration, a whole range of needs that we have um, for you know sustainable human use. And we need that for generations to come. Um, and then we look to those systems to also accommodate vital expansion of renewable energy development. So, you know, we've talked about those net zero targets and energy security in that transition. And, um, you know, we can't do one without thinking of the other. So, um, yeah, in terms of the role at the Crown Estate and what we've been thinking about doing, it's it's taking a systems based approach and recognising that we can't manage the seabed um, on our own. Um, even within our role and the unique nature of our role, it comes as part of a three dimensional system that we are grappling with that has demands over it. And um, you mentioned the offshore wind evidence and change programme. So that's one example of how we believe bringing together and gaining consensus on what the priorities are to meet the challenges and the demands over the seabed can help to unlock how we use it sustainably for the long term. So that evidence program is um, it's a 50 million pound um, evidence and research program that we run in collaboration with two different government departments, um, the Department uh, of Energy and the Department uh, for the Environment, so DEFRA and DESNES. And it consists of a steering group of just under 30 
bodies that have an interest or a representation in the marine environment. And it's not just those who have an interest in wind. It's also the um, impact and the interaction that wind has in the marine environment and uh, how the programme's been established just to focus on some of the key challenges that wind will face, continuing to grow in a constrained space that um, has a number of competing demands. So the projects that we invest in are anything from those that will help with um, planning conundrums, how wind interacts with particular areas on the seabed. It will uh, range from getting understanding on things like subsea cabling, how it can be designed to help encourage marine wildlife and start to produce um, some biodiversity gains, so net gain, as we've heard about in other podcasts. Or it can be anything from, you know, what is the impact of electromagnetic fields produced by infrastructure around the country and what can that uh, what impact can that have on particular species um, through to then projects that are looking at things like if there is an identified potential impact on the UK's marine protected sites, um, how could we collectively compensate for those? So environmentally compensate and not just deal with project level interaction so project by project and then the next project past the post is the one that is the tipping point actually thinking and addressing these things strategically so programs like the offshore wind evidence and change program really are a, a first sort of example of how we can um, bring together and collaborate around tackling a dual dynamic on the um, marine environment with um, net zero I'm glad to hear that this systems based approach is is really on the agenda um, for government. But I wanted to talk about essentially how we talk about the energy transition and a nature positive future, maybe outside of places that have the systems based approach, which is definitely not something we see on Twitter, where like 140 characters just doesn't have room for that nuance. Um, so I wanted to get your view on how essentially outside of that programme and the organisations involved, we can work towards a better and more nuanced conversation um, about balancing the energy part of the net zero transition and the nature part of the net zero transition. So how can we cut through the noise and through some of those arguments that are made on a really strong binary? And as you say, maybe about one particular project rather than about a whole system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Sarah, you know, your point around communication is absolutely vital. There's no one silver bullet, but everyone has to be on a common playing field and using common language. And for us, that common language is having consistent data and evidence. So um, in the Crown Estates role, we um, are talking about taking a whole of seabed approach when it comes to taking decisions so that when you take a decision, and this isn't just the Crown Estate, but anyone acting in the marine environment, we're doing so with a consistent set of data and evidence that underpins it so that we understand the interactions in any one particular area and the consequences of the decisions that might have um, for one sector need use versus another sector need and use. And actually, even beyond the offshore wind evidence and change programme, there's really a building consensus across industries, across marine users, across stakeholders, environmental groups, um, that actually we need to have a 
take evidence-based approaches and we need to have ways of connecting up our data and driving better insights from it and utilising those um, data and insights in a way that really shares a common language so that when decisions are being taken, they're ones that everyone can understand and get behind. And we don't get lazy with the idea that, well, we need one target and therefore we'll have it at the detriment of another. We can really see the consequences of growing a wind industry, for example, um, uh, the consequences of that on biodiversity and how actually we can build in um, at the earliest stages of thinking some of that nature positive approach. So, you know, is it the design of the infrastructure going in the water? Is it the interaction that the infrastructure has on other sectors which might impact biodiversity? So there is a whole, um, I was going to call it a movement, it's not a movement, but, uh, you know, a, a kind of I, I am experiencing a real gaining in consensus around data and evidence and the fact that, you know, we need to take decisions regardless of who we are, regulator through to industry um, or, you know, with an evidence base behind us and, and to help us speak a common language. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing more of that. I'm sure that there'll be more of that as the programme um, continues. It's something we're seeing onshore as well with the calls on DEFRA for a land use strategy as as well. So I can only see this being more of a conversation and, as you say, more consensus in the coming months and and years but Olivia I think that's all the time we have for our chat on today's podcast so thank you so much for sharing um, all of your marine planning insights with us today. Thank you for having me Sarah. Thanks once again to Olivia for her time and for sharing her knowledge um, with us and yeah it's been great to follow what the Crown Estate have been up to recently in terms of not only the big strategic work that we've talked about but also comms I covered recently that um, some schools in Sussex are trialling um, a Minecraft world created a partnership with the Crown Estate so that kids can try out planning offshore winds. So I thought that was pretty geeky. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And pretty cool. They've done a few things, Minecraft. I remember writing about them four or five years ago. They partnered with like EIT in Innovation in Europe about yeah creating these little, yeah, quite literally sandbox environments, I suppose, to mm-hmm. inspire the, the younger generations. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can uh, find a picture of the little Minecraft seagulls and wind turbines <laughs> to put on this episode. Um, So that was the part of this podcast with the Crown Estate. I'm going to move swiftly on to the third and final part of this podcast with um, another pop quiz question for Matt in a moment, Um, because next on our whistle stop tour of big net zero topics is finance. Um, So as you probably remember, Matt, GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, launched to coincide with COP26 in Glasgow. There was a lot of fanfare Mm -hmm. um, when that happened. But do you do you remember how many trillions of dollars it covers? I want to say like 158. He's very ambitious. It's 130. It's not quite there yet. I'm sure it would like to have that many. And how many members you think i don't know i know they've lost a few recently haven't they um 50 650 still because <laughs> okay, well um we might have had some big name levers and wobblers but we've still got so many financial services firms committed and if not working on some of those other um big alliances there's a veritable alphabet soup of net zero finance mm. alliances um out out there 
Um, and as much as I think that people appreciate that top line vision, um, there are still worries that they're not properly being turned into actions. We often see if you follow things like Bloomberg and the Financial Times, you see members quitting or scaling back because of things like their war on ESG in the US or because they said that profitable um, profitability um, predictions for fossil fuels have been skewed by conflict, making them a bit more profitable for a bit longer. And then also as well, looking now in the US at fears over competition rules, are they even allowed to collaborate on uh, net zero? So can these commitments be turned from ambition into action with all of those things in mind? Um, I'm glad I don't have to answer that question myself. Um, our third and final speaker has a wealth of knowledge on that topic and how to ensure that commitments are credible, ambitious and acted on with urgency. So last but by no means least on our hat-trick of interviewees for this episode is um, Naga Suresh, who is the Project Manager for Financing Towards Net Zero Buildings at the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, PSAF. Um, and as he'll explain, this is an organisation that really helps um, organisations in the finance sector to get from the why to the exactly how of their net zero finance emissions goals. So let's play that interview in full. Yes. So for this next part of the podcast, we'll be looking at that all important topic of financial institutions strategy. Um, because we all know that we will not transition the global economy to net zero by mid-century um, without leveraging the finance sector. So I'm delighted to have Naga Suresh on from the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. He is their project manager for financing towards net zero buildings to help me dig into that in a bit more detail. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, Sarah. I'm really well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for taking the time. I think we should probably start with an introduction to the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials for listeners who aren't aware of, of its work. It's something we've been covering at, at ED for several years years now. Right. So the, the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, or PCAF, as we call it. Um, so it's a, it's a global industry-led initiative uh, that aims to standardise the measurement and disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, uh, financed greenhouse gas emissions. So, so fundamentally, at, uh, at its heart, it's an accounting standard. It's an accounting methodology that financial institutions can use to calculate the greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with their financial activity. So that can mean uh, a multitude of uh, asset portfolios in which they are financing uh, activities, through which they are financing activities. And this methodology will help them to uh, calculate the uh, emissions associated with that. Uh, but but it's it's also important at the same time to to note that this is only the first step in the in the entire decarbonization process for financial institutions. Uh, you of course measure the emissions and then you set targets, you create strategies, uh, and ultimately you take action. And where we come in is really at the very beginning, uh, and and the tools and methodologies provided by PCAF can really help uh, financial institutions get started, get started with the measurement so they know where they are and, and then they can get a clearer idea of how to move on with the with the remaining steps. Got it. And I understand that PCAF has existed now for for several years, but I'd, I'd say that our coverage of it really peaked between the sort of 2020 um, to 2022 period, because as you said, um, it's really important when you have a target and a strategy and ambition that you know where you're starting from. Um, and lots of those targets, strategies and ambitions were sort of promised at COP28 and around COP28. 
Um, so what what have you seen in terms of the trends in growing support for for PCAF over the years? Right. So so I think the the COP26, as you as you mentioned, is a, was a quite a pivotal moment, the one in Glasgow, and um, it's you know besides PCAF, if you look at the entire industry as such, uh, in terms of financial institutions thinking about their journey towards net zero that period was quite important. So just after 2020, uh, 2021 and so on. Um, so they started acknowledging and acting on the effects of uh, climate risk in their portfolio uh, around that time. So green finance as such was uh, was quite a fringe thing before that, uh, if I if I can say that. Uh, and and COP26 really provided the impetus needed for uh, financial institutions to start uh, looking at it and, and the momentum continued from that point onwards. Um, so the conversation became more mainstream, uh, essentially, and and even from PCAP's perspective, the increase in the number of signatories uh, is is you know it's just one example of, uh, of how that IM movement started becoming more mainstream. Um, so PCAP started in 2015, and and it was started in the Netherlands. Uh, our first signatories were from uh, were Dutch financial institutions, uh, and then it became pan-European, and uh, and now we are uh, present all over the world. Uh, with specific uh, regional chapters uh, dedicated to progressing the decarbonization of the regional, uh, their respective regional finance sectors. So, uh, so you're right, absolutely. I think the COP26 part really helped push things along. Um, and but our growth trajectory continues to be quite steep. Uh, we are now at about uh, 400 signatories. And the plan is to reach a thousand uh, by the end of 2025. Uh, fingers crossed. So, uh, so yeah, hopefully we'll we'll continue along this trajectory in the in the coming years too. That's great to hear. So that momentum hasn't really slowed down, you don't think, in, in 2023, it's still carrying on? I believe so. I think uh, even though there are there are a number of external uh, uh, triggers uh, around the world, I think that whole focus on decarbonisation and continuing towards that net zero journey, I think it re- remains quite important for financial institutions. And once you start the journey, uh, it's very important to have the tools available to continue along the journey because you can't really, uh, you know, do the first step and then not really think about the rest. And luckily for us, we are we are in a situation now where those tools and methodologies are coming in from everywhere. A number of organizations are working to provide those to financial institutions. So, so yes, absolutely. I think the momentum is very much active even now. I mean, that's good to hear. And as as you mentioned, the conversation about decarbonisation and how that is leveraged by finance has become more mainstream, but we've seen that it also opens it up to more scrutiny. There's more questions about whether net zero emissions pledges from financial institutions are credible, whether they have that baseline data, whether they have the right scope. Um, So what are you seeing in terms of um, credibility at the moment? Because again, around COP, there was that moment where these top line pledges were being made um, and they weren't quite fleshed out yet, I don't think, in in some cases. Yeah, totally. I think uh, you're absolutely right on, on that initial uh, you know, lack of uh, substance to some of those pledges. Uh, but if you look at fundamentally, I think you touched upon the fact that data is quite important. Uh, so if you look at the tools available, um, access to quality data when you're measuring your finance emissions is fundamentally important. And then access to methodologies that will help you monitor this data, create targets based on this data, and then uh, disclose them publicly. That's also quite important. So I think I touched upon it before, but if you you have a number of institutions now, and it's not just PCAF, PCAF helps you measure, but then beyond that, uh, SBTI is quite active in the sector. Then you have uh, institutions like CREM and many others. So 
there are these tools available that will help you um, give credible detailed information regarding the emissions in your portfolios. And um, considering the improved uh, nature of these tools and methodologies, the credibility will naturally improve. And I think that has definitely become the case in 2023 uh, compared to 2020 or, or any of the previous years. So, and it will only continue to improve. Uh, an example is if, you, if you're talking about the building sector where, where I'm focusing on, um, there is the whole angle of embodied carbon emissions, which is quite new. And, and it refers to the emissions embedded within the building, uh, not just the operational emissions. Uh, so there are more and more uh, tools and data coming in to help you measure those emissions now. And and yeah, as I said, that will that can only improve the credibility of the of what is disclosed. That makes sense. And I wanted to touch on as well something that also is said to improve the sort of quality of pledges and data is is about like mandates and new reporting standards, because a lot of what we've been talking about are tools that companies might choose to use voluntarily. So do you see any significant signs of change on the horizon in terms of, yeah, you know, more top down pressure as well? Absolutely. So um, we have we've had some some of those uh, some of that pressure trickled down in the last few years. So if you look at TCFD, it has become now uh, almost uh, like mainstream, and everybody looks at uh, TCFD frameworks to to disclose their climate risk, uh, for example. And in currently, there are a number of discussions ongoing at various levels uh, in the European Commission, for example, uh, that aims to standardize and uh, ensure that there is a clear framework and a clear methodology and legislation to complement it that will that will enable and that will kind of encourage financial institutions to, uh, to start doing this um, an example of course is the CSRD uh, which uh, which will be uh, which is already passed in the European Parliament and it will be uh, uh, applicable starting from 2024. Uh, and, and it's really a comprehensive um, a disclosure framework that financial institutions can use uh, when disclosing their financed emissions. Got it. And I know we've really focused on tools at large there, but as you've mentioned, your specialism is in net zero buildings. So I really wanted to dive into that a little bit um, more and, and look at exactly what financial institutions can do in terms of measuring their building portfolio emissions where where are the tools at where's the conversation at at the moment yeah it's it's quite interesting because the building sector um you know it's it's often overlooked because it's uh I guess it's all around us, but um, it's not really the glamorous part of decarbonization in, in many ways, right? So, uh, however, the fact is that it contributes well over a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is uh, which is hugely significant, uh, of course. Um, and and the reason, one of the reasons why the sector might have been overlooked is because it's uh, incredibly complex. There are a number of activities all the way from production of the building materials to the actual construction of the building, uh, moving on to the operational emissions uh, associated with all kinds of things that are in the buildings. You have your boilers, you have your HVAC, uh, all kinds of those things are are causing those emissions. And even at the end of the life cycle, uh, when you look at the demolition of the building, uh, there are emissions involved. So, so it's linear. If you look at it in a linear way, there are there are a number of activities, a number of sources of emissions. So it can be quite complex. Um, however, so so what we really plan to do, um, uh, and and from a financial system perspective, uh, there is significant influence uh, that 
the financial sector can uh, can influence on the on the building uh, on the built environment. Obviously, they do uh, they issue mortgages. Um, there are commercial real estate products that they issue, and these provide an opportunity for the sector to really try to uh, push the built environment along and to ensure that the net zero um, 2050 target uh, can be reached for the built environment. Um, so. This this control can also be used in the value chain at the same time. Um, so like I mentioned, it's it's massive, right? You've got everything from production to construction to demolition. And uh, by providing um, those tools and methodologies required for those uh, entities in the value chain to decarbonize, the financial institutions can play a significant role. A second important part there is policy intervention. Um, as we were speaking earlier about the uh, the European Commission and some of the policy um, uh, changes being brought along, uh, financial institutions are quite involved in in terms of um, helping put some of these things together, and they are they can exert the influence in uh, uh, various policy acts being uh, being enabled. So, for example, embodied carbon it will be a quite important uh, thing in the coming years, and the finance sector can play a key role in ensuring that they start disclosing, they start measuring the embodied carbon in their building portfolios and uh, they be the front runners in, in that in that whole discussion. Um, and of course, you know, we've spoken policy, you've spoken about uh, direct influence. And besides all this, there's also always the financing aspect. So if you look at the building industry, according to an estimate by uh, WBCSD, uh, $1.7 trillion is required annually for the building industry to reach net zero by 2050. Uh, and when you look at the sheer amount of capital required to make something like that happen, naturally, uh, the financial sector has a key role to play uh, play over there. Absolutely staggering figures there. And I just wanted to come back to something you said at the beginning, which you said that um, buildings are an often overlooked um, part of the net zero transition that maybe like new energy technologies and transport technologies, the scene is a bit more um, sexy and innovative, really. Um, but where are financial institutions at in terms of measuring building portfolio emissions? Is this somewhere that people are looking at or are they still looking at the sectors you'd maybe expect like energy generation instead? Uh, yes, so it's it's very much, um, you know, so an area where financial institutions, the, the leading financial institutions have started measuring and disclosing their operational uh, emissions in their building portfolios. Um, which is wonderful, and it, uh, one of the one of the enablers for that was the uh, were the number of tools that we developed as part of the financing towards uh, net zero buildings project. Um, so, for example, uh, we've got uh, a database that we call the European Building Emission Factors Database. Um, so, any financial institutions can sign up to the to the project, and it's absolutely free of cost. And they can access the database, and they can use the emission factors. Uh, down to the granular level of uh, a particular country and a particular building type. For example, it could be single-family residences in, in in Germany, for example, and they can take that emission factor, they use it to calculate the emissions associated with their mortgage portfolio that that lends to that particular sector. Um, and and we've had a, a close to 2,000 um, uh, registrations so far on our database uh, since the inception in the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, and so there are a number of financial institutions that have already started that journey. They are measuring, they are disclosing. Uh, we've got a core project team full of uh, leading European banks, uh, which are leading the way in that uh, in that particular initiative. The the part um, that I think I've touched upon it multiple times, forgive me for saying that again, is, is that embodied carbon is quite new. 
Um, so what the, the initial part that I spoken about was about operational emissions. So the emissions involved on, on a day-to-day basis when a building is up and running. But that embodied part where you get from construction all the way to the operation, that is super important. And we have recently um, developed a database and guidance document for embodied carbon as well, which allows a financial institution to start disclosing their embodied carbon, to start measuring the embodied carbon in their portfolio. And 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 uh, we think it's hugely significant. And this is something that uh, more and more financial institutions are expected to uh, think about in the coming years. Um, it's super new, so it's still uh, quite early. And anyone who does it now would be an early adopter. Um, and I think, sorry about the long-winded answers. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, operational emissions, a lot of financial institutions are already on that journey and embodied emissions still quite new and it will happen in the coming years. Got it. It's not long-winded at all. I think this is such a complex topic that it's great to dive into it. And I think it's great that we've covered so many positive trends and so many tools that people listening can access. Um, but Nagra, I think we are out of time for this part of the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom about financed emissions. Thank you very much, sir. It's wonderful to be here and, and thanks for the opportunity. Yes, a big thank you once again to Naga and PSAF and again to all three speaker organisations. And I hope that's given everyone some food for thought because it definitely has um, for for me. So we're, we're nearly out of time for this episode, but I, I'm aware that we've still got a lot ongoing, haven't we, Matt? And there's a lot coming up. We're not out of the woods yet no this is kind of the the last big push before christmas i suppose um and as you mentioned next year in november in full swing uh cop happening as well we're trying to pull on a post cop event webinar um literally as the dust is settling as well to see what that means for business so yeah plenty on the on the horizon for ed at the moment yeah, I feel like just as the rest of the world starts to wind down and booze up for Christmas, um, it's the last big push for um, for us, but hugely exciting stuff in, in the pipeline. Um, a note to confirm that we are intending to be on the ground at COP, at least for the first week, and it is our intention to be podcasting in a new live spin-off. So there'll be more details on that shortly. But for now, do drop us an email if you're going to be there and you're keen to connect. Um, if you'd like to hear your voice on on this podcast been off drop us a line at newsdesk at fav-house.com once again that's newsdesk at fav-house.com um, plenty to come before then though as matt mentioned earlier we have an online event on wednesday the 22nd of november our net zero carbon action sessions a veritable afternoon of how to's for all of your net zero questions um, join us to hear from, as Matt mentioned again earlier, great speakers from the private sector. We've got people on from the likes of Mars Wrigley and Bupa, um, but also from the UN High Level Climate Champions um, and all manner of other organisations. So you can find more information on our Net Zero Carbon Action sessions on our site by clicking events and then webinars and masterclasses. So I think that's everything this side of COP. Matt mentioned the C word, Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, next podcast will be... I thought I'd said something really bad. <laughs> no, we'll have a Christmas special for our next podcast where we'll be looking at the ghosts of Christmas past, present, present yep. and, fu- and future um, in terms of climate. Um, so do join us for, for that one. Um, hopefully we can get some vegan mince pies in for Luke, who should be making a triumphant return. That'll get him back in. For that sure. episode, yes, we'll bribe Matt, uh, we'll bribe Luke back in. 
Um, but for this episode for November, uh, we are out of time and that's just about everything to cover. So thank you for listening. It's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>